Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Could have given quite a few more titles there, Helen, couldn't they? There was Give Me This Mountain, He Gave Us This Valley, Living Sacrifice, Living Stones, Living Fellowship Prompt Me. How many? Living Sacrifice and Living Holiness. Living Holiness. How many books in total have you written so far? Eleven. But they're not all the same story. But they do tell a story that's amazing, an exciting story of one woman's journey with God. Um, that journey began 1925, 1945? Right. And Give me the significance of those right. two dates. Yes. <laughs> but, um, it's not really a story about me. It's, it's God's wonderful, gracious, gracious dealing through many years. But that story starts in 1945. 1925, I was born into this world, 1945, I was born again into the family of God. And it's been quite a journey for you since then that has taken you, gosh, I was just looking around during one of the hymns, I shouldn't have been, but I noticed the flags and I thought, I'm sure Helen's been to most of those countries in one shape or form. Well, the sort of awfulness of this situation we're in, I can't see any of them because of these dreadful lights on us. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're out there and think I ought to recognize you, I can't see you. (laughs) Stephen mentioned earlier about the, the title for the convention this yes. week. It's Loving God, Loving Others. And for tonight, it's Loving God, Loving Others through Digging Ditches. So yes. with your permission, I'm going to take those as almost like three sections for, for our conversation. Okay, yes. Um, loving God started 1945. How did you come to faith? Well, I was brought up in a church-going family. But I'm afraid I never actually heard the gospel I went to a Church of England school, a boarding school for seven years, and again, I did not hear the gospel. Uh, I was confirmed, or as we said it in school, I was done uh, as a a 15-year-old. And yet, through that, a hunger came. I began to long to know this God we talked about. And... um, Yes, it was this deep inner desire. Just to sort of put it in focus, it was during the war, World War II, not one. And uh, <laughs> so it, it, God seemed unable to cope with the situation. I had family members in the war and some who never came back from war service. Why didn't God stop it? Why didn't God step in if he was there, if there was a God? And these questions began to grow. And then I went up to university And I met girls from the Christian Union. And straight away, there was something different about them. And very soon I began to realize they had what I wanted. And uh, the hunger grew. I went to prayer meetings with them. I wasn't a Christian. but um, And when they were praying, they obviously knew the God to whom they were praying. That was amazing to me. I had no idea that anybody could know almighty God and uh, through various means God in his gracious mercy opened my eyes I went to Bible teaching I heard steady regular teaching week in week out with these Christian Union girls and I heard of the gospel and I heard of the fact that God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins it was still out there it, it was still truth yes I believed it was truth but it didn't affect me and then one 
amazing night. I was at a, a house party at Christmas, and uh, I was almost desperate to know this God. And throwing myself on the bed at about half past six in the evening, I cried out to God, God, if you are there, if there is a God, please, please make yourself known to me. And I looked up through tears, and on the wall of the dormitory where I was sleeping, there was a text written. The last word had been washed out with rain. It was wartime. Nobody had mended the roof. And it said, be still and know that I am. And you know, for me, it was just as though God himself had answered my prayer. He'd spoken to me. God had spoken to me. He knew me. He cared. And then suddenly, all I'd been hearing that week, that this um, almighty creator God not only knew me, but loved me. Uh, And this was so tremendous. I I just cried. I just cried. I just had this... From that minute on, I knew I wanted to love this God more than anything else in the world. And I just didn't know how to say it or express it. But he he so loved me, he died for me. And I wanted to say to him, God, I'll do anything you ask me. At any time, anywhere, for anything. If I can just love you like you love me. And he did ask you to do something because oh, nine, nine years later you ended up moving from Cambridge to Congo. What, what, was, what was it like in Belgian Congo when you arrived as a, as a young medical missionary? For me it was wildly exciting. I'd spent those eight years training, preparing, and waiting with my mind getting used to the fact I'm going to Congo. Uh, and once I arrived there, my feet on the ground, Congo soil. Did you have any French? Uh, I learned a little bit of French because I, I had to retake a, a tropical, tropical disease exam in, in Belgium uh, in French. I knew just enough French to do that. But of course, medicine's all in present tense. You don't have to learn the past tense of verbs, what happened yesterday or what will happen tomorrow. It's just what, have you got pain now? Where is it now? So that was fairly simple French. So that, that was all the French. But when I reached out there, nobody spoke French anyway. They all, all spoke Swahili. Swahili. That's right, yes. So you had to start from scratch again with Swahili. I started from scratch. With and you started from scratch medically as well, almost, didn't you? There was very I little did. there when you arrived. When I arrived, there was one lady who came and said to me, said, um, we've been praying for you for 30 years. Now, I was not 30 years old. <laughs> so I looked at her. Well, she said, 30 years ago, we sent a message to London, England, to say we need a doctor. And we've been praying ever since. And he sent you, so we must have been praying for you 30 years. Uh, and uh, it, was just, it was just so marvelous. But then I realized there was no dispensary, there was no clinic, there was no, let alone a hospital. There was no house for me to live in. Uh, and uh, I thought, they've been praying for me all these years. Why haven't they got something ready for me? <laughs> <laughs> so we really did start from absolute scratch with nothing. I started with... They gave me an empty room to see people. And the talking drums had beaten, sent the message out. Our doctor has arrived. I don't know what. So the the patients flooded in, no doubt. The patients flooded in. The first day the clinic was chock-a-block full with, mostly with mothers and crying babies and um, screaming toddlers. And I didn't understand a word they said and they didn't understand a word I said. But that was the beginning of our medical service. If they rubbed their heads, I gave them aspirins. If they rubbed their tummies, I gave them Epsom salts. 
in the health service now, and I know there are folk here who work in the health service, and there's, there's this expectation that somebody somewhere will be able to produce whatever it is that's needed at some point soon. What did you have by way of materials um, to begin that medical ministry and also the teaching ministry that came sort of shortly after you started? How well prepared were you for what was there? Very little. I, I must have been very stupid because um, it hadn't really registered with me till I got out there that I was going to be the only doctor. So there was no and one a woman to, as well. Well, that was a help, actually, funnily enough, because the Africans loved me better for being a woman. Than, I didn't threaten them. If I'd been a man, they'd have been more sort of, you know, bit offy. But they, uh, uh, we had really nothing um, except a load of ignorance. I'd just gone out from a London hospital, modern equipment, all, you know, electricity, etc., uh, and modern instruments to arrive in a clearing in the jungle forest of northeast side, what was Congo, Belgian Congo then, and nothing, nothing. There was nothing, and, and patients could come, and I could make a diagnosis. I could write on the card what was wrong with them. And then I could think what I ought to do if I was at home, but with nothing. So I learned to invent things. I learned to invent things. I learned to use things. Actually, my field leader's wife became very, very ill within a month of my arrival out there. She had black water fever, and all my education told me was that 90% of people with black water fever will die. And I knew the only way of saving her was to put up a drip, etc. I had nothing with which to put up a drip. In fact, the only thing I realized I had, I, <laughs> this is just for those of you who are medics, uh, I had uh, a child's catheter. And I used this to uh, invent a method of, uh, I, the needles I had to use to get into the vein were not sort of needles you'd use, normally use and, and plug it into this catheter. And then I had to invent something to put through the catheter. Uh, we won't tell you anymore. But, uh, but God was so good to us. God was so good to us. He blessed what we did with very, very little. And because and, uh, that meant more people came. Because people were getting better who hadn't got better before I got there. So uh, God was good. God was good in answering prayer as well. I'm going to ask you to recount a story that I know you've written about and you, it was spoken about in the film as well, the story of the hot water bottle. Because I'm quite sure there are some folk out here, some of the younger folk who aren't aware, and I think it's a really powerful story. Would you tell it for us? Well, I'd been out there about four years, and we had by then built a small mud and thatch hospital, and we had a small mud and thatch maternity unit. And one night, just after midnight, one of the pupils, I was by then training nurses in the hospital and midwives in the maternity. One of the pupil midwives came across and banged on the window and said, you're needed urgently. And uh, I went across to the maternity unit and there's a mother in labor having her second baby. But things had gone seriously wrong. And despite everything I did, sadly enough, the mother died. And I was left with a little tiny baby and um, we'd no premature unit we'd, we had no electricity we, we'd no way of doing the sort of things you'd do at home, we'd no way of giving special feeding or anything so I turned to the pupil midwives and I said well I want you to fill two hot water bottles either side of the baby, bring in the little cots we put the babies in 
And meanwhile, I got on with other jobs. And one of the midwives came back into the unit and said, I'm terribly sorry, doctor. I boiled a kettle. I was filling the hot water bottle. A sudden bang, burst hot water bottle. He said, it is our last hot water bottle. I said, okay. No good crying over not spilt milk, but burst hot water bottles. So I said, you put the baby in the cot as near to the fire as you safely can. You've got to stay awake all night, so when the baby tries to throw off its coverings, you wrap it up again. You sit between it and the door to keep it free from drafts. Uh, If that baby gets cold, it will die. Next day, as I did every midday, I went to have prayers with the orphanage children. Any children who wanted gathered around me for prayer time, and I told them different things to pray for. And that particular day, amongst other things, I mentioned this baby and the fact that the mother had died. And I asked them to pray that the nurses would stay awake to keep the baby warm at night. I mentioned the burst hot water bottle. And there was a two-year-old sister who was crying because her mummy had died. And one little girl prayed during the meeting, little Ruth, 10-year-old Ruth. And she prayed in a very blunt way of our African children. Please, God, send us a hot water bottle. Now, God, it'd be no good tomorrow. The baby would be dead. So please send it this afternoon. And in my heart, I felt, I can't really say amen, because I didn't honestly believe God could do that. I mean, I know he can do everything, but not that. And then she added in her prayer, and while you're about it, God, would you send a dolly for the little two-year-old so she'll know that Jesus really loves her? That afternoon, I was over teaching in the nurse's school, and somebody came and said, there's a car outside your house. I went across the house, but the car had left. But on the veranda was a large parcel. And I looked at the postmark from London, just south of London, southeast London in England. It was the first parcel I ever received in Africa. And I felt I couldn't open it alone. So I sent for the orphanage children. They gathered around me in a great crowd. And we opened it together. They get very impatient because you never cut string. You might need it tomorrow as you undo every knot. You never tear paper, you might need it tomorrow so you unfold every piece. But once you're in, pulling out lovely knitted jerseys, knitted bandages, the kids looked a bit bored, big bar of soap, and they're probably more bored. And then I put my hand down into the parcel and I pulled out a brand new Bootsy's rubber hot water bottle. You know, I really couldn't believe it. I hadn't asked God for it. I didn't believe he could do it. Ruth was in the front line of children. She rushed forward, said, if God sent the hot water bottle, he must have sent the dolly. And she dived into the path with both hands, and from the bottom, she pulled up the dolly. And she just looked up at me, Mommy, can I go over with you and give that dolly to the little girl so she'll know that Jesus really loves her? Yes, This is one of lots of lots of stories of the wonderful way God answered prayer and God looked after us and God cared for us. And when when we were at the end of our tether, when we just felt we couldn't do any more, he supplied what was needed. It wasn't always an easy journey with with great things happening. I'm still marveling at who would send a hot water bottle to Africa to the rainforest. But there were times when there were few smiles and things were very difficult. And I'm thinking particularly, Helen, if I can steer you to the the mid-1960s and the Simba Rebellion, because you went through a fairly harrowing time there personally. Yes. The um, 
we suddenly heard it was a, a Saturday in August and a truck drove into the village and there were shouting men and they, they were harsh. They weren't like our usual people. And they were shouting in a language I did not know. So one of my nurses had to translate for me and say, they brought with them a wounded civilian. And the word he used for civilian, uh, you knew it went, must mean you were at war. I didn't know we were at war. I had no idea. I'd heard nothing. We didn't have radios or anything in those days. And um, that was the beginning of five months when the guerrilla soldiers, or what we came to know as the Simbas, the Simba army. Simba just means in their local language, lions. They call themselves the lions. And they took over. And for the next, well, 10 weeks initially, I had two on either side of me, day and night. I went nowhere without under escort of these soldiers. Uh, and they demanded what I should do. They demanded who I would operate on, etc., etc. And it was harrowing. You never, if you didn't just do what they wanted, when they wanted it, they, they slugged you with the butt end of a gun. Uh, and you kind of learned, well, I was a coward. I just didn't like the pain. So, so you kind of learned that uh, it was best to do what they said when they said it uh, and not to argue with them. And then there came the day, about after 10 weeks, about halfway through the five months, when they actually came somewhere after midnight to my home and um, a gang of them, and I was beaten up and um, roughed up, you'd say. I was badly, I was kicked, but they broke the, my back teeth that night with the boot of a rebel soldier. And the whole thing was wicked. And you just knew it was wicked. And I was driven back to my home. And um, part of me was sort of crying out to God, God, where are you? I didn't, I never lost faith in God. But I kind of felt he wasn't there. I felt he wasn't doing what he ought to be doing to look after me. <laughs> and I was driven into the house down a narrow cor corridor. And just in that, I don't know what it would take, 10 seconds. It was as though God spoke to me. He, he didn't use words. I just knew. It was almost as like I saw a, a film show went through my mind as I walked down that corridor of how much Jesus suffered for me. Could I trust him with me in this situation? And then it was as though he said to me, can you thank me? And in my heart at that moment, no, I couldn't. But then he said, can you thank me for trusting you? And I thought, you know, I've always thought of me trusting him. But here he was saying, can you thank me that I am trusting you? And it was as though he was saying, yes, I could have taken you out. I could have rescued from this. I could have made it different. But I have a plan. I have a purpose. I know what I'm doing. Can you trust me? Can you trust me? And, and even if I never tell you why it's happened, it was amazing. Even in the midst of the darkness, the wickedness, the cruelty of that night, somehow God got into my being and, and helped me to say, yes. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. But yes, if this is part of your program, God, thank you for trusting me. And immediately, he didn't take away the pain or the bitterness or the cruelty of everything. But immediately I had this amazing sense of his peace and, and the total certainty that God was in charge. And it really was quite amazing now. 
it was a wicked and cruel night. I was raped. I was beaten up. I was driven away to another place. And uh, the whole thing was horrible. Uh, and holding on to God through the darkness, I was so alone. Uh, I was the only, we didn't call ourselves whites. We were pale skins. I was the only pale skin amongst a great crowd of dark skinned. And I just felt, I didn't know where we were going next or what was going to happen. But through it all, it was as though I could put my hand in his hand and he held tight. And I could almost feel his grip uh, and say, okay, God, okay, I trust you. And uh, he, he gave this amazing sense of peace that he was in charge. That incident... Um, and that, that period of five months in captivity, you were rescued at the end. Um, and there's a story that comes out of that rescue. Uh, there were quite a few stories, I think, that come out of that rescue that shows that even then, seeds were being planted. I'm thinking in particular of one of the mercenaries who contacted you in, in years later. Yes. Uh, we John, were, John Carter? Yes. I wouldn't have remembered if you hadn't told me. <laughs> Yes, it's true. We, we, we were taken away to prison. The, the cruelty went on, the beatings went on, the fears went on. But there came a day, ultimately, when mercenary soldiers, a little crowd of 25 pale skins, mostly from South Africa, Zimbabwe, down that way, or one or two from England, and we were rescued. And we were taken out of the whole situation where we were, and uh, we had the, the um, we were in a pretty bad state. Uh, I certainly hadn't seen water to wash in for two or three weeks, and I looked like it, probably smelt like it. When they took us to the barracks of the mercenary soldiers, they gave us water. They threw clean shirts into us to put on. We weren't we had no dress, no clothing, and uh, they were very good to us. They took us into the evening meal, and they got there were. I forget things now. There were eight of us, I think I'm right. And they kept eight places on this big table. And there were about 50 mercenary soldiers. And the leader of the mercenaries, a man called Mike Hall. Uh, and uh, he turned to our leader, Jack Skull, and said, you probably want to give thanks. So Jack said, well, let's sing the doxology. This was so, another WEC missionary. Another WEC missionary. So we all sang the, the doxology. And he 50 soldier boys, and uh, I doubt if any of them were Christians, uh, and they certainly weren't, weren't really soldiers. They pretty all of them escaped from uh, prison sentences or other dis things they'd done in life, uh, and they were there being taught to be soldiers, really. But they, they had tears running down their faces while we sang the doxology. It was as though, really, we talked to them that evening for hours, but it was really as though they, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that we'd just been rescued out of horrific conditions. Uh, and we had joy in our hearts. This was something totally foreign to them. Years later, I can't remember how many years ago now, uh, about six, I'm looking at my friend over there, about six, eight years ago, we had a phone call. And the man on the phone said, this is John Carter. Okay, you're John Carter, but who is John Carter? Uh, and uh, he was ringing from South Africa. And he said he had been looking for me for over 20 years. He didn't know who I was or where I was or how to find me to thank me 
And the story was he was one of the young soldiers amongst the mercenaries who'd rescued us and who saw how we reacted to the situation. I actually spoke to the, um, my corps, the leader, and I, I said, do you have a medical work amongst you? No, we didn't. I said, surely, if any of you get injured, who's going to look after you? And I, I actually offered to stay and uh, do medical f- work for them. And he'd heard this, and they just couldn't take it in that this was for real, it wasn't put on, it wasn't a party piece. And he and another fellow had come to know the Lord as Savior through our testimony that night. It was wonderful. Those were seeds that were planted at that time. Some of those seeds that have been planted over your time in Congo and in Zaire, um, you've seen the results, you've seen the fruits of those. Others you haven't. I want to move forward in time to 1976, whenever you, you finished your time in Congo and you came back to Britain. And it's at that stage that this whole idea of digging ditches starts to enter into your vocabulary. It's, it's the verse from Second Kings, isn't it? That's Second right. Kings 3.16, I think. That's right, 2 um, Kings 3.16. And it's where Elisha has a word from the, the Lord and he's told, make this, this valley full of ditches. That's right. How is that for you? I'd come home from Africa to nurse my little mother, and then the Lord took mummy home. I expected just to go back to Congo, but the mission asked me to do a year of deputation work, and I was taking meetings over in America for them. And during that time, I realized I wasn't well. And when I came home from America, I went and had surgery in a hospital. And um, the mission had already, uh, the mission knew I'd gone to hospital. And they'd already said, now, we'll not be sending you back to Congo, uh, certainly not for a while until we see what the prognosis is and how well you do. And when I came out of anesthetic, it was very dark for me. My mother had died. The mission weren't sending me back to Congo. I had no particular object, no project. There was nothing I'd got to do next. I've always lived with deadlines. I'd always got to do the next thing, next thing, quick, quick, quick. And suddenly, I had nothing. And I asked a little nurse who was looking after me, I said, open my Bible, please, where the marker is. Put it up in front of me, and then leave me to be quiet. And I was asking the Lord, Lord, I need a verse for the next stretch of my life. I need direction. Where do I go from here? I said, I want a verse. I was reading the old authorized version. We didn't have many others in those days. I said, one of the verses that says, Thus saith the Lord. I could be absolutely sure it was God's voice. And if I shared it with other, other people would know it was God's voice. So there was the Bible, opened up at my marker, 2 Kings chapter 3. And I thought, how can God lead anybody out of a chapter in 2 Kings? But I started to read it. And then I realized that I knew the story. I had taught this to African students. I kind of knew what was coming, and I didn't want it. I was, I was afraid. I was afraid of what God was saying. And so my eye went down the page, and I could see it coming in verse 16. Thus saith the Lord. And I almost put my hand across the Bible so that I couldn't see it for the moment. And I asked him for the grace to accept whatever he wanted to say. And then it was there. Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. 
I thought, that's a funny voice, funny verse. Well, what are you trying to say to me? The valley was easy. My mother had died. I had no home. The mission didn't want to send me back to Congo. I just had major surgery. I didn't know what tomorrow held. Yeah, it was a valley experience. Make. It was a positive, active verb. Something I got to do. Make this valley full of ditches. I prayed about it. I lay there. So in the end, I got to the picture saying, okay, God, I'll dig a Suez Canal. And really the Lord said, I haven't asked for a Suez Canal. I just want a little ditch. And lots of little ditches. Every day a ditch. And in the story, you've got three armies and they've come to a river, River Arnon, where they expected to find water to, to, for themselves and their animals, but it was dried up. It was the dry season. It was just a sandy riverbed. There was no water. And God said, make this valley full of ditches. So those soldiers had to do what they weren't trained for. They weren't trained to dig ditches. They trained to fight wars. They got no particular, they hadn't got spades. They'd only got their armory. And it was always saying to me, never mind what I ask you to do, Never mind if it's not what you trained for. It wasn't going to be anything more to do with being a doctor and being in medicine. But whatever I ask of you, I want you to do it each day. And the very next verse, verse 17, is almost worse. There is, you won't hear rain, you won't hear wind. It was so pointless, it was stupid. And here the Lord was asking me to be willing to Never mind if you don't understand what I'm asking you to do or why or where. You just do each day, each day's job for who, whomsoever you are with. And that began for me this idea of digging ditches. And it's lasted, well, it's now 35 years. And every time I try to say to the Lord, would you give me another verse, please, to set off the next bit? He just says, the valley's not yet full. There are still folk out there not saved. There's still folk who've never yet heard of Jesus. There are still young people who need help and training to get them out there to take the gospel. There are still older people there waiting to be encouraged to let their young folk go and to know how to back them up in prayer and how to give, to give sacrificially to make it possible for them to go. You've got more ditches to dig. So I'm still digging ditches. Not a spade in sight. Have you seen any of them fill? You don't see it at the time. Yes, we sometimes get some very exciting letters and emails. Uh, one fellow who emailed in he said, won't you, you won't know my name, you won't know anything about me, but in 1976, I thought, good gracious me, uh, and he quoted a particular meeting. I thought, well, I remember that meeting, yes. And he said, that was the day that God challenged me to give up my own desires and to go his way. And I've been in mission service ever since. And we get letters like that now, and it's not a lot, but enough to be so encouraging to know that the dear Lord has been filling the ditches with water. Others have drunk of it, and there have been victories won through it. And uh, I just want to encourage everybody that these daily little ditches, I think God had to say to me, missionary service... And I'm sold out to missionary service. I am a missionary. I can't help it. That's what I am through and through. But missionary service isn't just overseas. It isn't just to another nation. It may be your next door neighbor. It may be the person you work alongside. It may be the person you meet on a bus or in a, in a shop. All the time, people. And people who don't know Jesus. And who are growing, going out into a Christless eternity. 
Do I care? Do you care? Yes, I love God. With all my heart, I love God. And he put into my heart a tremendous love for the nationals in Congo. I loved the people. But now he's really saying, you can't choose where you do it. Uh, I would have chosen to go back to Congo. I think perhaps secretly in the back of my heart, I think I'd still choose to go back to Congo if the way opened up. But, but God said, where I put you each day, are you digging a ditch for me? Are you seeking to so live, so live the loveliness of the life of Jesus that others are drawn to want to know him? Are you willing to be seen to be an oddity, out of step with the world because you stand for things that the world doesn't stand for? Are you willing to dig a ditch? Helen, I know you talked about some of the nurses joking that you didn't work 24-7, 52 weeks of the year. You worked... 25, 8, 53 weeks of the year. <laughs> and I think folk listening to you will get a sense of that. Um, I get the sense reading your, book that you have, your books that you've been an incredibly dynamic, feisty, energetic person um, in everything that you have approached. And I know that a lot of people who've read your books have been blown away, to use the phrase today, by your honesty and by your forthright description of how, what's the phrase, God has been pruning you down from a branch to an arrow. Yes. There's been a lot of Helen that has had to be dealt with. And I remember somebody saying to me a long time ago, God is more interested with what he's doing in you than with what he's going to do through you. Yes. What has God been doing in you since you first set foot in Congo 1954? I think I would find it very hard to kind of sum that one up. How are you a different person now? I think you have to ask people who live with me. <laughs> they know whether I'm different or not. Sometimes I just feel I'm not different. I long to be. I long every day to be more like Jesus. I long for his gentleness, his loveliness, his meekness, and yet his strength, his unswervingness. Um, we prayed before we came in here to the meeting. I prayed that I wouldn't exaggerate because that would be my me. And he doesn't ever exaggerate. And I want to be like him. I want my word to be utterly true. Because I don't believe he can bless it if I add my perspective. Last year I was, I was ill. And um, my colleague, bless her heart, she cared for me. And she cared for me at a stage when I was, I was unable to do pretty well anything for myself for a stage. The weakness as well as the pain... Uh, and when you can't get yourself out of a bed, when you can't turn yourself over, when you need help to do the very simplest things. And I'm an independent type. Uh, and suddenly I was utterly dependent. So I think God is still working on changing me into him. To be more like Jesus. To be willing to be dependent. Uh, and to trust him in the overwhelming sense of weakness, not only physical weakness, but weakness altogether when you, you don't know what you're going to do next or how. He's in charge, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And he'll never let us down. 
and living that. I've been very struck in the last few days in my Bible reading that where Paul said, for me to live is Christ. I want that to be utterly true of me. And I want my friends and those I share home with, I want them to know it in how they see me different. Uh, but he's still busy. He hasn't stopped changing me. <laughs> um, the digging ditches around the world have taken you to conferences, um, to churches, to youth groups. You've spoken to so many people, and yet I sense a frustration that sometimes people haven't responded as you feel they should have to the call for mission. Now, the focus of this gathering every day this week is going to be very much on mission. You are what's called a career missionary. You've been, you've been there and you've done it and you're still doing it. What do you have to say to folk here? I think that there seems to be a modern a movement in the modern church which uh, uses the word commitment. I think particularly of you younger folk, this is, when I say younger, what I mean is under 80. Because <laughs> then you're younger than me, Okay. Um, we use the word commitment in the sense of I decide what I'll do for Jesus, how much it's measured. I just don't like the word. Now, I may be wronging you. Maybe you mean more than that when you use it. I want a sort of throwaway attitude. I want you to so fall in love with Jesus. When you realize that Jesus, God's holy son, died for me died for you and you just want to love him with everything you've got love him through and through and through and that you'll throw your life away for him that all that matters is pleasing him pleasing him every decision pleasing him and it's not a commitment for a week or a year or even 10 years it's it's for life now i did have to learn when i went out to africa in 1953 it's a long time ago now i had the I believed in my own mind I was going there forever, that I would never come home. I would die in Congo. I'd be buried in Congo. That was my home. That was my heart's desire. But God had other things. And the, the forever part isn't the place where you work. It isn't even the job that you do. The forever is, I so love him. Forever, forever, I will do what he wants, when and where and for whom he wants it. Yes, we love God. And by God's grace, I let his love go through me to others. So I love others. But I'm willing to dig the ditch wherever he wants it dug so that he, the great almighty God, can do what he wants to do through one at, at, at any moment. And um, I've forgotten now what you asked me because I've gone off and rambled on in my own way. I was asking what you say to the folk who are here. When it comes to whether or not they should or they shouldn't, they may be feeling an urge from God, a prompting um, to an area of the world or to an area of work that they believe that God might be drawing them towards. But there will be things holding them back or people holding them back. 
First and foremost, fall in love with Jesus. And be sure of that. It's not just you, you know that he died for you, full stop, point. You know, it's not that. It's you love him for this. And because you love him, you want to give him all. You want to serve him. And, and I plead with all of you, whatever your age group, uh, I can see some who are under 20, and I can see quite a number who are somewhere between 20 and 80, and a few others who are over 80. It's the same for us all. First and foremost, fall in love with Jesus. Then fall in love with his word. Because you only get to know him by soaking in his word. It's there that we learn who he is, what he is, how lovely he is, and his power and what he can do through you and through me anywhere at any time. And his faithfulness and his unchangeableness. It's in soaking in the word that that comes in. Get these two things into you. You won't need to bother much about anything else. Because if you really love him wholeheartedly and his word... Uh, you'll be a missionary, because he's a missionary, uh, and you want to be like him. Uh, I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus was always thinking of other people, always serving other people. Always, I mean, he went to the cross for other people, for you and for me. Am I willing to go to whatever cross he has for me, that he can work out his purposes through me for other people? And, and you know, this business of a missionary call, I didn't... I didn't have the ordinary thought about missionary call. I just know the night that I was saved, the night that I came to know that Jesus died for me, within a few hours of that, the same night, I knew that I wanted nothing else except to tell others about Jesus. I really didn't care how, where, when. My my college, when I went back up to university the next term, I think some of them got really tired of me because wherever we were uh, I was always talking about Jesus I think some of them oh for goodness girl shut up for a bit but but I couldn't it was the only thing that counted and uh, if you get gripped by that you'll be a missionary and then when the needs come and you'll hear speakers this week you'll hear speakers this week and you think, I could be doing that I could be doing that okay God's speaking to you if you begin to get an urge in you you know, I could be in that situation. Go for it. Go for it. Don't hang back. And, oh, just realize there's nothing else matters in this life except pleasing him. Because, you know, he's coming back. And I don't think it's very long now till Jesus comes back again. I really believe he's coming back. You want to be found by him where he wants you to be. And you want to be found by him doing what he wants you to do. Fulfilling his will. Telling others serving others wherever he sends you don't hold back parents don't don't hold your youngsters back if one of your youngsters teenager early 20s university student got life before them and you're thinking well when i get old they'll look after me forget it you just see if they've got an urge in their spirit to go for the lord somewhere just say go with my blessing i don't think there's anything sadder than being on a mission board in the homeland and a candidate comes up for missionary acceptance. And we ask them, what do your parents think? And there's a moment's pause. And then they just say, they're not for it. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking for young people when they know that God wants them to go somewhere. And parents hold them back. Don't hold them back. Let them go. And go with your blessing. Go with your prayers. Go with letter writing to them regularly. Uh, my little mother, bless her heart, she didn't know much about writing letters. And for my first four years on the mission field, 
first four years on the mission field. Mind you, in those days, we only had posts three times a year. But I never got a letter. Now, these sort of parents are going to write them, let them go, write them every month, keep in touch with them, send the money that's needed for them, pray for them, be real about it. And grandparents are the same. I don't matter what age you are. We all need to be in on this. We really do. It's every single one of us. There shouldn't be one of us who gets away this week and feels, well, I'm not involved. You are involved. And if you're not involved, you've got a lot to say when the Lord comes back and he says to you, why weren't you involved? Why didn't you give more? Why didn't you pray more? Or even, why didn't you go? You know, these days, we have places for senior citizens in missionary children's schools where we need people to cook or to become house parents and to look after them. It doesn't matter what age you are. Secretaries, uh, home boards of missions need secretaries. They particularly need people who are computer literate, not people like me, you know, not old fogies. But we need people who, who could help at the home end, whoever you are. If God puts an urge in you to feel, I could be part of this, don't hang back, don't be afraid. He's wonderful. He'll never let you down. I don't think anybody could ever call you an old fogey, Helen Rosevere. <laughs> Not by any stretch of any imagination. They did call you Mama Luca. And Mama Luca is still going to be digging ditches for a while to come, I would say. That's right. <laughs> Helen Rosevere, thank you. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.